All right, for those of you who um, are, are new with us, we welcome you, or if, if you're not a regular here at Cornerstone, we're glad you're here with us. We're in the middle of a series of talking about becoming a church that is, that is rooted deeply in Christ and that's rooted deeply in our, in our land, um, moving from a, a church plant mindset to a rooted and developed uh, in Christ mindset. Um, you know, there's churches that have been around for decades and centuries that, that still think of themselves as though they're just planted, where everything's about the Sunday morning service and focused around that. We don't want to be like that. We want to be people who are rooted and grounded in our land 24-7, every day of the week, the, the supremacy and glory of Christ just becoming our obsession um, with everywhere that we are, that each person here has Jesus at the forefront of their mind, being a person who is rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. Um, in doing this, we've been walking down four assumptions, and uh, these assumptions are something that we've been coming back to continually and that we will continue to come back to continually. The first assumption is uh, you, can't, uh, you can't love the head and hate the body. It doesn't work. You can't, you can't say, um, I-, I love Jesus, I just have problems with his church. Uh, it doesn't work because you know, he's a whole being. And his body is, is here on earth, represented through the local church and the regional church and the universal church. And so we, uh, we embrace that um, with all of its um, dysfunctionalities and all of its craziness and all of its insanities. You can't love the head and hate the body. Number two assumption, the church is a means to an end. It is not the end. You coming here is not the point. You being the church out there is. The church is a means to an end. That end is the greater glory of Jesus. That glory happens as more people become disciples of Christ and walk in his truth and life. Um, So it's not about coming to church. Uh, It's about being who it is that we're meant to be, being the church, not going to church. We will at all costs have Christ at our center. Um, And this is a lesson that we've learned through many different avenues here at Cornerstone and that we're continuing to learn um, what it means for us to have Christ at our center. It's very easy to put the church at the center. It's very easy to put mission at the center. It's very easy to put programs at the center. We, We will not have those things at the center. Christ will be at our center. And lastly, we will not be driven by consumerism or numbers. These are the two great deceits that the enemy has, has injected into the church over the course of the last 60, 70 years, uh, being a place where people come to consume church, to consume God, um, and being driven by how much money is in a budget, how many people are in the seats, how much your buildings are, all that kind of crap. We're not going to deal with that. Um, we will be driven by having Christ at our center. Um, we've taken different sp- different points throughout our summer, and meditated on some scripture um, around these assumptions. And um, today, Justin's going to come and lead us in Lectio Divina, which is a meditation on scripture based on this assumption about um, we will not be driven by consumerism or numbers. So, Justin. So, yeah, over the summer, we've been listening to a, um, a musician called Derek Webb, and we've been listening to some of his songs in connection with each of these Um, assumptions that we come to church with. So we're going to continue in the same vein. And uh, the song that we're going to listen to today is called Spirit Versus Kick Drum. It's not really a meditative song. Uh, For the purpose of it, it's it's really well done in what it's saying and how it's also not saying that there's anything wrong with the kick drum. But what is our centering point? You know, if we're not going to be driven by consumerism, what will we be driven by? So um, as we look at uh, Philippians and as we listen to the song, ask God what uh, he would have to reveal to you about this assumption, about how sometimes we come and we're driven by what we want uh, and God in the package that we want him at. So, um, Dwayne, can you put the scripture up? I'm going to read it once and we're going to listen to the song. I'll read it twice and then we'll have a couple minutes of uh, silence to meditate on it. 
Brothers and sisters, I do not consider that I have made a truly full experiential knowledge of Jesus my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. God, we desire you in your fullness. We desire you the way that you bring and give yourself to us. God, forgive us for the, um, the things that we project on you. We tell you how to be. We package you. We box you in. We define you. We say what you are about. And, and we demand. I mean, we are entitled, spoiled kids sometimes. And we miss your heart for us. We forget that our redemption was bought at the cost of your death. We forget that the Holy Spirit is the authority and not us. And we forget that you created us and therefore you have full rights to us. So God, bring us back into line with you. Align us with your truth that we might walk in it and bring you more glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The four assumptions that we've been focusing on have been paralleled with four principles. We're going to talk about that fourth principle today, and we're actually going to talk about this fourth principle as we begin to walk through September, October, and, uh, and November. Um, the principle is this, is that moving from being a church with a mindset of a plant to being a church that is spiritually rooted and grounded in love, um, church plants ask people to commit to Sunday mornings and possibly then something else some other kingdom, ministry, service, outreach, Bible study, small group, something like that, as God leads them. Rooted churches ask people to commit to identity, which is your personal spiritual intimacy with Christ. Ministry, the appropriate application of spiritual gifts. Stewardship, the godly usage of his entrusted gifts and financial support of the work of the church. And community, bearing one another's burdens and growing to maturity together. Sunday morning gatherings are a time of celebration when all these things with all these people come together for a corporate ministry to the Lord together. This is the biblically commanded time that is not to be forsaken and therefore should be a no-brainer for the Christian. You coming to church on Sunday is something you absolutely should do because we should not forsake the fellowship of, uh, of the saints together. And it's been the church's history for 2,000 years that we meet on the Lord's Day to celebrate the Lord's resurrection and to put him at the center and to minister to him together. This is what we do. It's important for you to be engaged in a local church. It's important for you to have submitted yourself to uh, leadership and spiritual authority from God's word, the way that God lines it out for you. But that is not the point. That is an outgrowth of what it means to be someone who is in Christ. That's an outgrowth of what it means to be someone who's received something good from God, both spiritually and physically, financially, It's an outgrowth of what it means to be connected to other people in the body of Christ through the supernatural work of Jesus. And so therefore, what we do on Sunday mornings is not not the end, it's the means. It's the point to something else. And it's these other things that we're gonna begin to talk about, right? These four things. Identity in Christ, 
ministry through spiritual gifts, stewardship in the work of the church, and community. It's those four things that we're going to begin to devote ourselves to. Uh, You're going to hear me use that word a lot this morning because I think that in order to receive what it is that God has for us from this key principle, which is a a biblical principle that we're going to begin to tear apart and look at a lot, like I said, over the course of the next few months. Um, In in order for us to do this, I think that today's teaching is, is, is... absolutely essential to us receiving what it is God has for us in the coming months. I'm hoping that today's teaching becomes a point of, of freedom for a lot of us um, because I'm hoping to confront head-on um, what I consider to be false teaching that's found the church in, in a lot of regards as it means uh, or in regard to what it means to be a person who is following Christ the way that he designed us to follow him and thinking about him the way that he designed us to think about him. I think that we have been fed lies. I think these lies have come from the enemy and I think that they have found their way to us through any number of destructive patterns. Uh, we all have histories and places that we come from. But I think that this particular deception is, is the same across the board. It just all finds us in different ways. Um, and, and it's... Uh, It causes a blockage um, between us and God in receiving what it is that he has for us and us living out what it means for us to be a child of God where it is that he's put us. So, um, like I said, this is going to be teaching, but this is teaching with an eye towards spiritual warfare. I am looking with God's word to to break down a stronghold that I think has kept God's people enslaved. It certainly kept me enslaved. Um, It it still finds me from time to time, and I I know you folks have been here for eight years now, and I'm telling you, you deal with this too, because I know you. So, let's pray together. Let's ask God to... um, to war for his people and to open our minds and hearts to him more deeply. God, we believe that, um, well, Exodus 15, the Lord is a warrior. Um, we also believe that Jesus Christ, through the shame of the cross, actually became the most powerful that he ever was. <laughs> and, and sin and death in the grave are defeated forever and ever. And, and um, that the enemy's deceptions, when confronted with God's truth, that's a joke and so we declare in the name of Jesus today that God's truth reigns we declare in Jesus name that the enemy's deceptions are broken Uh, we declare that um, that that religion and its deceptions false religion and and its deceptions that find us and that have been given to us oftentimes with great intent down through the years good hearts but, but we come from broken places and broken histories and broken stories, and we need to be continually redeemed. And so the way that the enemy's deceptions find us, he can be very creative. And so God, we pray for you to go into our hearts and minds and the spaces um, and places that have been told wrong things, that have been uh, told wrong things about you, about your word, about the way that you interact with us um, I pray that you would free us today from these deceptions, and I pray that you would open our minds and our hearts to you. God, move in us to turn us in repentance. Unveil our eyes that we might confess what it is that you see. Open our hearts to a deeper devotion that is Christ. We bless you, God, and believe that you are setting us free. In Jesus' name, amen. So this, this thing that I'm talking about um, is, is this, and this is sort of how I lined it out. Um, this is the deception, is that when you and I are confronted with sin in our lives, 
we're told to have deeper devotion to Christ, and then we're told to confess our sins, to repent of those sins, and then to ask forgiveness from God. I was told this a lot. I think that you were told this a lot. I think that from a lot of different perspectives and in a lot of different ways, we were all given this idea, in, uh, be, be it from the way we were brought up or the churches we engaged, or if we weren't brought up in the church, I think that, that this finds us because, like I said, the enemy deceives. I think that this is a, a deception of the enemy that he gives to us just naturally. He just, it's, 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 it's a key way that he makes us think wrongly about what it means for us to be a child of God. So this is how it worked for me. Like I, I, I got a lot of stories I could share with you about this situation, but I'm going to tell you about one. Um, I went, to this, I went to a Christian school growing up, and I went to a very fundamentalistic Christian school, and we went to a uh, camp one time. Um, we went to this camp down in South Carolina, I think it was. And at this camp, there, it, was a, it was your typical Christian summer camp kind of a thing. But this was with my high school class. Actually, I think this was my, my senior trip. My, my, some schools, you know, go to the beach and party. We went to um, South Carolina Bible camp and learned about God. Um, so... Um, but, but every teaching, most of the teachings that I received growing up in this situation were this thing. But there was every once in a while, you know, where you'd get like a really good speaker. You know, this person was generally called an evangelist um, who was somebody who would come in. And on some levels, this whole point, this guy's whole point was just to make sure that um, people who weren't Christians became Christians. And the people who weren't Christians got the hell scared out of them, Literally. Um, and this is, this is how it operated. Well, this dude was here, and, uh, and he, he brought the word, and he brought a word about um, Judas. We were a bunch of high school seniors, and he entitled this, this, uh, this message, Judas, the high school senior who never graduated, and, uh, and then compared all of us to Judas and was like, you know, you better make sure that you've got your, uh, you got your life in line um, because you don't want to be Judas, right? Anybody here want to be Judas? And nobody wants to be Judas. Um, strange thing, no, no hands went up. Um, and so then he, he gave an invitation at the end of this. Uh, who doesn't want to be Judas? If you don't want to be Judas, come up to the front here. Pick up one of these sticks. Tell God the worst thing that you've done and throw it in the fire and then you'll be cleansed. Um, uh, and so what you do is you need to give yourself more to God. And so come pick up this stick and that's your confession of sorts. you know. Um, and then if you really mean it, which is repentance, um, God will forgive you if you ask him. Right? Deeper devotion, confession, repentance, forgiveness. You're told to have a heart that's more for God. You're told, be more into Jesus. What are the ways you're not being into Jesus? Okay, well, that's sin. So now you've got to get rid of that. And all those things that keep you from, from loving God as much as you should. And you know that you don't love God as much as you should because we're all sinners, you know, and, and so because you don't love God as much as you should, you need to be more devoted to Jesus. And I'm going to tell you how to be more devoted, more devoted to Jesus. You need to confess your sin. So look in there. Look at that nastiness. Don't be afraid of it. That's what Jesus died for, was to, to save you from those things. So, so look in there and find the sin that keeps you from being more devoted to Jesus. And then confess that sin. And then you need to repent of that sin. Repentance means it shows up in your life. Hopefully through emotion in the moment that has you somewhere weeping and crying along the way. And that's repentance. And then be it when God sees your contrite heart and the confession that you gave him and the, uh, the repentance that you're offering him with great emotion and uh, weeping and gnashing of teeth, then when you ask God to forgive you, he will. 
right? Like I said, that comes from my experience. And some of my experience probably parallels some of your experiences. But some of my experience doesn't necessarily parallel your experience, you know? A lot of times what the enemy gives us is that he finds us somewhere in our lives. And what generally happens, you know, as, as a kid, your life is sort of given to you. And so you just sort of operate where you are in that. But if you're an adult and you're coming to Christ, or if you're an adult and you're, like, uh, if you're, you're seeking Jesus, trying to figure out how, what it means to follow him, um, what he generally, the, the way this generally works out is, well, there's a lot of really bad stuff happening in your life. I mean, you don't have as much money as you need to have. You know, you don't have the kind of happiness that you think you should have. Uh, your marriage is broken, or you're addicted to this, or you're addicted to that, or, um, you know, you, you, you run from your pain, and you can't deal with your pain. So, you know, so, so God's pursuing you. Um, and, and the enemy says what you need to do is you need to have a heart that's more devoted to God. And he does this by guilting you. Right? He, bring, he brings guilt to you. And he says that, that you should feel guilty about all the bad things that you have done because the troubles in your life are probably your own fault anyway. And if you would just have a heart that, that's more after God, then you could fix those things. This generally works itself out with adults. Um, when you hear an adult say, I know I need to get back to church. When I hear that, boom, red flag. The enemy is trying to deceive this person. I know I need to get back to church. No, you don't. You need to love Jesus. You, you need to love Jesus. Now, a church might be a part of that. I'm, I'm not questioning that at all. I'm not saying being with people that love Jesus isn't great. But you getting back to church isn't going to do anything except probably reinforce the deception. So the enemy says, look at your life. Your life is your fault, and God is making you feel guilty for the fact that you're not following him. So here's God up in heaven going, rah, rah, it's your own fault. You know, if you were just getting in line, then everything would be better. And then you walk down this, and here's this, whoa, what did I do? And here's this enemy saying, you need to have deeper devotion to Jesus. And then on some level, uh, there's some kind of like confession or feeling really bad, trying to, feel, trying to do a lot better than I've done before, and, and hopefully then God will forgive me, and I'll be able to be clean and clear of all that junk so that I can hopefully have what it is that I really want, which is generally peace, happiness, you know, good, good stuff. But this is not the way that God works. This is not how God works. God does not start by saying, change your heart and love me more. And then, tell me everything that you did, feel really bad about it, and then, yeah, okay, I'll forgive you then. That's not God. Do you hear what I'm saying? Like, that's not God. I'm going to show you how it's not God. Take your Bibles. Turn to Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah is just before Psalms and Job and Esther. So if you find yourself roaming around Psalms or Job, keep going back toward the front of the book. And you'll run across Nehemiah. And Nehemiah, Nehemiah is a book about uh, redemption and restoration. Ancient cities protected themselves with walls. Jerusalem was no exception. The Israelite people turned to idols and were carried off into captivity, and all of their walls were broken down. If a city doesn't have walls, it cannot protect itself. If a city has no walls, it has no pride. It has no, no national integrity. 
So Jerusalem had no walls. It also had no temple anymore. And because the center of the Israelite faith was uh, the worship of Yahweh, the temple was central to those things. So neither one of these things existed. Ezra the priest and Zerubbabel went back to Jerusalem to begin to rebuild the temple. Nehemiah was in a strange foreign land to his people, serving the king there, and God brought him a word that said, you need to go back to Jerusalem and lead my people in the rebuilding of the walls. And so Nehemiah goes back to Jerusalem and he leads the people in the rebuilding of the walls. And they overcome a lot of hardship and stuff, and uh, it's great. Nehemiah is a primer in what it means to be a good God-centered leader. Uh, Nehemiah is a great leadership book. If you want to learn how to be a better leader, study Nehemiah and look at what Nehemiah does. By the time we get to Nehemiah 8, the walls are done, and it's time to set things back in order. It's time to get things back to the way that they belong, because for, for decades, the children of Israel have been out of Israel. They have been away from God in, in captivity in both Assyria and Babylon, and it, it has been a very, very, very long time. Generations and generations have not been in Jerusalem, have not been worshiping God at the temple, have not been keeping the feasts, have not been keeping the sacrifices, have not been worshiping Yahweh the way that he was supposed to be worshiped. And it's because they turned to idols. And now God is calling them back to their homeland, calling them back to their city, calling them back to who it is that he made them to be. And this is the initial starting point for that coming back. All right? Nehemiah 8. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hokiah, Maseah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, uh, Malkijah, Hashem, Hashpadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and he opened it. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Yeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Yamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maseah, Kalida, Azariah, Jazabed, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Again, Israel had found itself deeply engaged in the worship of idols and some horrific idols 
that had sex goddesses at their center and that the worship consisted of public sex display with a priestess. This is what God's people were engaging in. The worship of Molech was another one, which consisted of, at its great festivals, a huge bronze bowl with seven compartments carved into it. And in those seven compartments went a bunch of different animals, from small to big, chicken, turtle dove, calf, goat. And on the top one went a small child, generally seven to ten years old. And a huge fire was built around the base of Molech. And it heated up this bronze statue and slowly roasted everything alive in those seven compartments. And this is what Israel had turned to. This is the worship of idols that Israel had gone to. And so God judged them as as well he should have. It's the only way his grace could have been given to them. And off they go into captivity. And they're in captivity. And there is no engagement at that point in time with the law. Right? There's no engagement in that point in time with the worship of Jesus or the worship of, of Yahweh to be, you know, Jesus is, is still a forerunner to come, faith in him. Uh, there, there was none of this. Generations were forgetting what it meant for them to be who it is that God made them to be as his people. So they all come together. They all come together for the teaching of the word. And as they come together, Ezra, the priest, he stands up in front of the people and he opens up the book of the law. This is a book. This is, again, this has not hap- happened in, in at least 100 years. The book of the law being opened in front of the assembly of Israel that they might worship Yahweh together. And most of these people, no, all of these people had never experienced this corporate worship. You might even remember in Babylon, the Jewish people tried to protect themselves and their beliefs by setting up their own, the first ghetto outside of the city and sort of keeping things very Jewish and keeping things very secluded and and pure. And in Isaiah 29, God tells the people, get up, get out of your homes, get out of this small town you made for yourself, go into the city and work for the peace of the city. Stop being secluded and separate. I mean, this this was really going to pervert what things had happened. So these people have never engaged this before. Ezra stands up to read the book of the law, and the people stand to listen. And it says that they were attentive, that they really listened to what it is that God had said. And as the law is read, the people are being hit. Right? I mean, the law of God, the word of truth is coming in and it is, it is hitting them in their hearts, in their minds. They are seeing the differences between who Yahweh says he is and who they know that they are. And they're beginning to mourn and to weep and this great revival is breaking out. Right? People on their faces in repentance and in, and, and in confession and in, in the desire to have deeper devotion to Jesus. And, and to Yahweh and the law, and they're seeing this, and this great, emo- this is the kind of thing that as church leaders, man, you beg God for, and, and you glory in it when it happens, because finally people are starting to get it. Except that that was wrong. That was wrong. Their mourning, their weeping, their grief, over what it is that they were feeling and what it is that they were seeing was sin. Look at verse 8. Ezra read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they, that being the Levites, the teachers, the priests, the elders, they gave the sense. 
so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and the scribe and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. And our thought is, well, of course this day is holy to the Lord their God. God's doing this great work of repentance and of drawing people back to himself. These folks are hearing that their hearts are not after God and they're, and, and, and they're, they're worshiping and they're, and, and, and they're broken. And the priests are saying, stop acting like this. This is not right. Stop grieving. Stop mourning. Stop weeping. Why? Not because... Their response is necessarily, there's other places in scripture where people are mourning and weeping and God is pleased with their brokenness. The question though is not were the people feeling their hearts called to deeper devotion in Christ and then being emotional because of it. The question was in the Levite's mind, what has God said? What has God said? God spoke really clearly. This day, on this day that Ezra's standing up and reading the law, is the first day of the Feast of Booths, the Jewish festival called Sukkot. And a Sukkot is a huge party. It's a harvest festival. It, it, it's an entire week of, of the, some of the greatest parties that Israel ever puts on. The eighth day is a solemn assembly. The eighth day they come together and they remember who God is and they repent of their sin. But those first seven days, God says, don't warm, don't mourn, don't weep. You are, to, you are to have joy. You are to rejoice. He tells the people to set aside 10% of their income every three years in order to have a bigger party when the Feast of Booths rolls around. You know, he's saying, this is what I have said. This is my law. My law is that the first day of Sukkot, you are to rejoice. You are to have fun. You are to eat and you're to drink wine and you're to be with your family and with your friends and you're supposed to have fun and bring your harvest in and cook the good stuff. For seven days, live it up. This is my command to you. And this is the first day of Sukkot. And the law is read and the people hear that their hearts are far from God and emotion overtakes them and they step into this emotional place. And I think many of us, if not all of us, especially church leaders that want to see God move, will look at this and go, yes, God is doing something. And Nehemiah and Ezra look at each other and say, this is not good. This is not right. This does not align itself with God's revealed truth to us. Something is wrong in our people's heads. So make no mistake about it. Repentance is exactly what Nehemiah and Ezra call the people to. He, they definitely call them to repent. And they call them to confess. And the people experience a deeper devotion toward God. But it will be on God's terms and not the people's. So let's talk about some of these concepts, some of these uh, structures and whatnot. Um, let's start with uh, this here, uh, th th this, this equation. Some definitions. If you're taking notes, write these things down. Repentance is this. To repent is an act of the mind on the part of a person that turns 
aligns, and submits itself to the mind of God. This results in an act of the will on the part of a person that turns, aligns, and submits itself to the will of God. Repentance is an act of your mind. Repentance is here. Repentance is in your head. Repentance is an act of the mind that turns. That's why we have this sign up here. This is repentance. If God were to give us a symbol for it, I think this is what it would look like. This is different than the road sign, which would generally have the arrow going down. But I thought we should repent up to God. Doesn't that make sense, right? Where we, where we change things around. To repent is to turn and align and submit yourself to God's mind. It made zero sense for Ezra and Nehemiah to say these things. To say, stop, stop, stop weeping, stop repenting, stop grieving, stop your brokenness, stop. Except their minds knew what God's word said and their minds believed that God's will was best. God had defined his will for them right here in the book they were reading. How could they not do what God said? And they called the people to repentance. Absolutely. The people are emotional. And it says in verse 8, they read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the what? The sense. So the people understood the reading. This is about understanding God's mind and about knowing how God thinks. To go back to my previous illustration about my summer camp experience with Judas, the uh, high school senior who never graduated, the starting point for that whole situation going wrong was that that's not the Bible. Nowhere is Judas, the high school senior who didn't graduate, And nowhere does God call anyone to identify themselves with the heart of Judas so as to be more righteous before God. Which means that what happened wrong was in that dude's head. And then what went wrong was that we were not given clear understanding of it. Right? And so then what went wrong was also in my head. And then my head got tripped up and I walked down a path that I should not have gone down. That wasn't what God laid out for me. When we understand what God's word says and we align ourselves with that, turning from what I would naturally align myself with in order to align myself with God, both with my mind and my decisions and the choices of my will, now I am repenting. Repenting is almost always a calm process. Oftentimes, emotion is linked with repentance in Scripture, absolutely appropriately so. But it's that that leads to repentance. Romans tells us that godly sorrow leads to repentance. It does not say that godly sorrow is repentance. Godly sorrow leads us to repentance, where the kindness of God is given to us again. But when we misunderstand these things, it's our head that gets tripped up. Last week we talked about it in Romans 12, 1 and 2. That the way that we present our bodies to Christ, the way we're not conformed to this world, is to be transformed by the renewing of what? Our minds. Our minds. When we are told to have deeper devotion to Christ, in other words, get your heart more in line with God's heart, has anybody here ever had any success with that? Of just, yeah, I'm going to be more after God. That's just more after flesh. I can't change my heart. Furthermore, the scriptures tell me I can't change my heart. So when I try and change my own heart, I've automatically got myself a point of repentance then. 
because my mind is messed up. God changes my heart. God changes your heart. God swoops down in his love and his grace and his mercy that pursue us in our lives, and he draws our heart out. But a mind that will not submit to his mind is a heart that cannot be changed. You hear what I said? A mind that will not submit to God's mind is a heart that cannot be changed. How you think about God is the key. And God will do everything he needs to do in order to bring you to the point where there is a shift up here so that there can be a change in here. Repentance is is an absolutely key and crucial point. And we have done the deep disservice to it of stopping We've stopped making it a posture of our lives and we've started making it a big emotional experience that we have every once in a while when we hear a really good speaker. And that is to our shame because that's not what God says. Repentance is meant to be the posture of the Christian heart where everything that I do is about aligning myself, turning from the way I would do something, turning from it and aligning myself to God's way and his mind and submitting to that and then choosing something by my will through that, which is what happens here. Great revival is breaking out. Ezra and Nehemiah say to the Levites, this is going bad. This is going bad. The people's minds are wrong. They're not thinking clearly. Get off the stage, get with the people, and give them better understanding, which is exactly what happens. This day is holy. This is verse 9. This day is holy to the Lord your God, Oh, I'm sorry, uh, before that, I want to include that key word. Nehemiah was the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God, do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink sweet wine, send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to the Lord our God. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. They lead the people in understanding God's word, which is what they said they did in verse 8 as well. They gave the clear sense of the text, and the people understood the law. They just applied it wrong. They went after the wrong thing. They acted wrong as a result of that, and their actions mattered, which is why the priest left the stage and said, you're still not understanding it. God said this. Today is a party. But I just heard the words of the law, and I've realized how broken I am and how wretched I am and how destructive my life is. That doesn't matter right now how you feel. What matters is what God said Let's party. But I feel like this. What did God say? You want to be a person after God, that means you repent. Repentance is the starting point, not the third step. The call for deeper devotion is a false call. It is a false call. Tell somebody, get your heart right and get in line with God. Make it right. Make it better. Come on already, Christian. That's just shame, 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 shame. What we need to hear is God saying to us the appropriate words, which very well may be shame. Don't get me wrong. God uses shame rightly. Shame is simply missing a standard. God's, someone else's, or your own. 
So shame in regards to other people or your own standards, that's a, complete, that's a horrible thing. Let's do away with that. But when God says, you've missed my mark, the feelings of shame we have are right, and that leads us to a kindness of God through repentance. Repentance is the starting point here. Right? In Nehemiah 8, repentance is the starting point. In, in the Gospels, sp- and, uh, and, and again in the epistles, especially when it's concepts of faith that, are bring up that, that the question is about. These are questions of repentance. What do you believe? You believe you can save yourself? Then keep doing what you're doing. But Jesus is a stumbling block that you will trip over and will repent. That's what God needs. That's what God needs. That's what God desires from his people. Repentance is the starting point. The third point. And if you look at this in Nehemiah 8, we see the people repenting. That's what they're telling them to do. Get in line with God. God said, today's a party. So stop the weeping. We need to align ourselves with God's mind. Again, that's not to say that what they were doing was bad, how they were feeling was bad. It is to say God said something bigger. Because what's next is confession. To confess simply means to see the same as. To confess is to see the same as. We tend to think of confession, again, in very emotional terms. Confession is also an act of the mind. Right? The word confess in Greek means to see. To see the same as. To confess means we look at this thing. I, 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 commit, I commit sin. God looks at me and he says, that's sin. And I say, yes. I see that the same way that you do. That is sin. To not confess is for God to say, that's sin. And for me to say to God, but you don't know how I was feeling. For God to say, that's sin. I'm not sure about that. For God to say, that's sin. And for me to look at him and go, oh, who's God in this situation, really? But those oftentimes tend to be our responses. Or, what God, I think, does more. I think he does that. We can certainly see that in Scripture. That's sin. I mean, David, Moses, he does this down through Scripture. But oftentimes what he does more is he doesn't necessarily say that's sin. What he does is he takes our focus, because this is oftentimes what happens. Here's the sin out there that I've committed, and this becomes my focal point all of a sudden. And, and so now God's looking at this saying, that's sin. And I'm looking at it going... That's sin. Oh my gosh, look at me. I am a sinner. I am a horrible person. I have got to be a better person. This sin owns me. Why am I like this? I'm so wretched and disgusting. God, set me free. Except I'm forgetting that God's there. And here I am focused on this. And so what confession is, is God, like a loving father, takes my face and he turns it and he says, see me. Who am I? You are God. That's my confession. This is what we do. We sit here, and the enemy, he takes our uh, uh, graphic illustration. Um, as a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool returns to his folly. Sin, vomit. Other place, it's poop, which is also an enjoyable concept. And uh, he takes our head, and he says, you sin." You need to confess and repent. He takes our head and he just shoves it down in there and he pushes it in. Smell that. Feel that. How do you feel now? 
This is what Jesus died for. And I get so focused, and I'm so covered by it, and I'm filthy in it, and that I get, I get so busy looking at myself, and going, I want to repent, I want to repent, I want to repent. I just said the word I three times, and I'm no closer to repenting than I was when I first did it. Because this is not repentance. God, help me. God, help me. I'm such a terrible person. I need to be better. Make me better. I'm better. I want to be better. This is repentance. God, you are God and I have nothing. I'm, I'm lost. You're God. I see you the same way you see you. And I want to be more like you. Because you are beautiful. You are great. I want to gaze at you. I want to be with you. When we're so focused on our sin and our nastiness, what we are saying is, I want to be with my sin and my nastiness. Even though what I'm actually saying is, I don't want to be with this anymore. But all I'm doing is being with it more. Because shame tells me to be with it more. And guilt tells me to be with it more. When God says, leave that dimension, come over here and be with me more. Confess me. Which is what the people of God do in Nehemiah. How many of you have a chapter heading for chapter 9? What is it? What's it say? The people confess their sin. That's right. The people confess their sin. The people of God in Nehemiah 8, they repent first. They repent first. And then they confess. They repent and then they confess. They shift their mind to align with God's mind for who he is and how he desires them to engage him based on his word, even though they didn't feel like it. They then celebrate, the end of chapter eight is is the party. They then celebrate the Feast of Booths and they have a great big party and they come together on that eighth day and what do they do? They confess their sin. They say who God is, which is all that chapter nine is about. It's a great big just blast of God, this is who you are, this is who we are in comparison with who you are, we want to be a people after you. We get so busy focusing on ourselves in repentance and confession, we forget that repentance and confession is actually about God. And that God is a God who is rich in mercy and gracious in his loving kindness And he does not guilt his people because all of our guilt was put on Christ on the cross. And so we're free from that guilt. But we live as people who are attached to that guilt because generally, dang it, stupid thing. Dwayne, go back to, I want to go back to the the bad equation. Just use your cursors. Use the left cursor. Bam, bam. There we go. When we're told the deeper devotion, we're told focus more on you. You need to be more devoted to Jesus. You need to have your heart more in line with God. Get it right already. I've been telling you this for the last eight years that I've been your pastor. Let's go. Line it up, people. Woo! Don't we all want to have fun on the Christian gospel train to heaven? No, this sucks. Yes, it does. Why? Because the enemy's taking our heads and pushing it into our vomit. No more. We will at all costs have Christ at our center. We will at all costs have Christ at our center. And we will not be driven by the deceits of the enemy any longer. This must stop. And now I am saying this to you, the people of God. This must end. This must end by the power of God transforming our minds.
because this is where we got to go. We start here. If what I'm saying to you now is clicking in your heart, then that means that something needs to click in your head. You hear me? If what I'm saying to you now is clicking in your heart, then that means something actually needs to click in your head. I find it easier to feel a certain way than I do to change what I believe up here. I think that's pretty true of the human condition. And I can say all I want, and I can get real excited, and I can hear my music on Sunday mornings and worship God with my hands out and be all about all that stuff, and then walk out of here and believe the same deceptions that I came in here with because God wants me to change my head so that he can change my heart. And our problem is in our false notions of repentance that keep us locked in our deceptions and our guilt. And that is not God. But when we repent, when we shift our mind, we align ourselves, our minds and our wills with God's mind and will. What that opens for us is a door for confession where we can actually see what's going on. In the turmoil of a mind that's not right, how can we ever see what's actually real? Do you hear me? Right? By, by shifting what we think about God and, how we, and, and, and what we believe about God in our minds, we then are released to see who God really is and what our sin really is. And we can live as people with a true recognition of what it means to be the people of God. Because I have now aligned my mind and my will with God and I can see who he actually is and what's really going on. Now, I have the most beautiful opportunity given to me through the grace of God. Because as I repent and change what I think and align myself with God's word despite what I feel, and as I confess who God is and what he has done, do you know what God does? God opens his grace and his mercy and his depths to us, and he says, here's a door to deeper devotion. Come in. Come on in. I'm in here. You've aligned yourself with me. Let me teach you how to love me more. Let me change your heart. You're in line. Your, your mind is right. Your eyes are right. Look at this door of devotion and joy and emotion and happiness and goodness. It's right here for you to walk through. Come in. Take your Bibles, go to Acts chapter 2. Dwayne, click forward, please, to the devote definition. Thanks. Acts 2 is the coming of the Holy Spirit upon the church. It's the birth of the church. Peter preaches. The scriptures say the people are cut to the heart, right? That they're feeling something very deeply. Verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Pay close attention to this, right? They were cut to the heart, they felt something very deeply. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, what? Repent. Repent. 
Change what you think. Align yourself with God's mind and God's will. And then what does he tell them? Repent and be baptized. What is baptism? Baptism is a confession. Baptism is a public acknowledgement of who Jesus Christ is and who I am in Jesus Christ. Baptism is a confession. Repent. Confess. Be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Let me just point out this out right up front. As a, forgiveness is never a question mark in God's mind. Like this, this ridiculous notion about confess right, repent right, and then ask God for forgiveness. I thought Jesus died on the cross for all of our sins and that forever and ever our sins are washed away, that Jesus' forgiveness is complete and secure and total all across all sin for all time everywhere. As far as the east is from the west, so far are our sins removed from us. So when it comes to asking God for forgiveness, let's just put the brakes on there for a second and let God re-teach us what it means to be people who, A, have been forgiven, and B, to be people who have been called to forgiveness. Because forgiveness in Christ is absolute. And if you're running through your mind right now, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Like, that's exactly the point. See, that's been used, again, to guilt people. Confess, and then God will forgive you. But until you confess, God won't forgive you. Well, that's just a bunch of baloney. That's ridiculous. That harmonizes with zero of the rest of Scripture. The question is, is how is forgiveness applied to your heart? Can, you be, can, can the forgiveness of Christ be applied to you if you don't confess and see things the way that God does? Thirdly, when John says, if we confess our sins, if you were to translate that completely out of the text, it would say, if you forgive your sins, and you will, and you always do, then he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. It's a complete understood. All the concepts in verse 9 of chapter 1 John 1 are a completely understood concept that these things are present tense happening. You are confessing the forgiveness of Jesus is forgiving always and forever throughout your whole Christian life. If you say that's not happening, then you're a liar. John goes on to say, just to cut off any questions about, like, is there conditions around it? So, that was, that was a good rabbit trail. Okay. Repent. Repent. Confess. Uh, you will receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added to that, that day about 3,000 souls. Verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. All came upon every soul. Many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. Note the chain. Next slide, please, Dwayne. Note the chain. Peter calls the people to repent and to confess, and then they devote themselves. They repent, they confess, they devote themselves. Same thing in Nehemiah chapter 8. People react wrong, they feel wrong. You repent, align yourself with God's mind. Confess, see things the same way that God does. And then what we see the people step into in both Nehemiah 8 and Acts 2 is a door for deeper devotion to Jesus. 
And this door opens for that opportunity. And, and here is something for you to step into. Because this is to be the rhythm of our life. This isn't for me when I, when I, when I, when I get saved. This is the rhythm of my spiritual life. This is the rhythm of my walk with Christ of me continually aligning myself with God's mind and submitting myself to God's will, confessing, being toward God instead of being toward my vomit, being toward him and confessing who he is. And then God opens all kinds of doors for me to walk in and through so that my heart can be changed by him. I've got a mind in line and my eyes are in line. I can see who God is. I'm not focused on myself. And so doors open for deeper devotion all over the place. But I don't start here If you start here, you're creating false religion because things can't be right yet. There isn't an opportunity, there isn't a door for God to change our hearts yet because we're not aligned with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's a gentleman. He doesn't force himself on you. The people worshipped idols. God changed their situation, but it was them that came back. Right? Right? I mean, God's work is never ending and, and, and forever and always. And he is sovereign over all things, including us. But he waits and he's very, very patient in his grace, his love, his mercy, his judgment. God is always there calling us to repentance, to confession, and opening for us doors of deeper devotion, which is the result of what it means to be a person who is repentant and confessing. He's not up there going, get it right already. He's given us so much more grace than that. But one thing he does demand is that it's on his terms. It's, it's according to this. We live according to the standard of the word of God as revealed to us in written word, as he reveals it to us supernaturally, as he calls us in our minds and spirits and opens things up to us and dreams and visions and relationships. And the word of the Lord finds us in many ways. The question is, is will we listen? And I believe that there are people here today who God is saying to you, no, you're not listening. You're not listening. But don't hear that. Don't hear that from the enemy in that you're not listening, so you must be Judas who never graduated from high school. <laughs> hear it in this, is that, is, is that you listening to God is the only way for God to love you. You, you receiving who God is and the way that he brings himself to you that that is his grace and mercy to you. But he will not bend from how it is that he is calling to you. He will not shift from the way that he will love you. So repent. Repent. Confess who he is. And then allow the Holy Spirit to open the door for what it means for you to be more devoted Christ. In case I didn't make it clear enough just now in in that, I wasn't talking to people who don't know God there. I was talking to you Christians. 
especially those of us who have known Jesus for a while and who've sort of gotten used to this thing. Because this deception, I think, it, it gets so rooted in our heart. It gets so, so, so guilt-based and, and, and improperly shame-based. It's given to us so wrongly that, I mean, it just ha- it has deep roots in our being. God wants to, to free us from that. Remember what we started with. Like, this is about breaking this deception off of, off of believers, off of, off of you. So we generally hear repentance almost always in terms of the unbeliever. Again, not hugely biblical. Um, God calls Christians to repent. And there's a lot of us that have believed this deception and who need to return to God, who need to return to his mind, who need to return to his will, who need to confess who he really is, to let him pull us out of our vomit (laughs) and clean us up and turn our faces back to him so that he can show us what it means to be more devoted to him. This is the gracious goodness of our God. So in true fashion, since I very rarely have points of application that I give you folks, um, we're not going to sing at the end of our service today. That might be a bit reactionary of my own story because that's what would always happen. You know what I mean? You always sang like 27 verses of Just As I Am or some other, some other hymn or something like that while the guy up front made up hands that went up in the back of the room. You know, um, we don't, I don't want to do that. But I, I do want us to open our hearts to God, to open our minds to God, and for him to reveal to us what it means for us to repent and confess and to hear from him what the doors are that he has for us. And we're just going to be quiet. You know, we'll bring the lights down. We'll be quiet. I invite you to bow your head, close your eyes, kneel, whatever you want to do. Um, God is speaking. And you folks were listening. So what repentance is he calling you to? What confession is he calling you to? What doors are opening? Be with God.